JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. Colts 2-1 and one on the season. Get that win on the road at Baltimore from Pro Football Focus every Tuesday. Brad Spielberger joins us now on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. What would you make of that Colts win in Baltimore? One of the wilder games, if not the wildest game, certainly, of the weekend. One that the Colts end up getting with Matt Gay from 50-plus. The fourth of four of those, again, the game winner. And basically a duel down the stretch there into overtime with Justin Tucker. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I think there were a lot of awesome takeaways. I guess I should start. I did make fun of the Colts for, for giving Matt Gay such a huge contract. Uh, you know, and he made me eat my words. I think it was the biggest free agent deal for a kicker ever. But, hey, if you make four 50-yard field goals against Justin Tucker, no less, um, you know, I, I, should, I should eat my words there and walk that back. So, <laughs> I, well, I've, so, said, I've said this before you continue, and, and listen, maybe it's not time to say that just by virtue of one game and that experience on Sunday, but this could be the greatest free agent signing of the Chris Ballard era right here. I know it's a very small pool to pull it from. It is. Um, it is. <laughs> yeah, well, for this too, hey, Samson Ebicam had himself an afternoon as he well. He did, so, yeah. Yeah, so maybe, maybe quality over quantity, and that's my other big takeaway. I mean, this defensive line is a problem right now because – you are seeing the growth from Quiddy Pay that we were expecting to see. I think there's still room for Deo Dangbo to continue to play good football. Right now, a really good edge setter. Not the greatest pass rusher, but I think that will come in time. I think they should start toying with moving him inside on passing downs a little bit. Maybe get Grover off the field for those plays. To Grover, uh, I mean, just phenomenal against the run. I mean, one of the hardest offenses to play against the run. And he was, you know, there are some injuries to that offensive line, but he was taking on combo blocks and, and, and blowing through them. Um, he was exceptional in this game. So, yeah, that defensive line right now is, is frankly winning them games. And then on offense, I mean, Shane Steichen. I mean, you bring in Gardner Minshew. I know he's getting a lot of praise. Look, he, he played well. His average depth of target was about five yards beyond the line of scrimmage. But that's all you really needed. You know, get it to Zach Moss, who looked great, and then get a lot of short targets to Michael Pittman, you know, Josh Downs, etc. It was just a great game plan and then really, really good football in the trenches. All right. So, Brad Spielberger, a PFF with us. You mentioned uh, Ibukam. Um, I'm curious, what do you think that he has brought to this team? Because oh, it was the usual suspects, and I, I agree with you, Quiddy Pay is, is certainly on the rise right now. But what has he brought? To this offensive line because it seems like for the first time in a while and I mean a long time around here there has been a consistent pass rush off the edge and and, and, and to me that's what he has brought what say you yeah so the big thing for me um, here is we, we always fall in love with the elite talents in you know San Francisco and Philadelphia all those places that are known to you know Dallas to develop all this high-end defensive line talent but the real reason why those teams you know, are pressuring quarterbacks on every single drop back is because they have a platoon approach. They rotate players. They keep everyone fresh. And you look at Ebicam in San Francisco the last couple of years, he plays about 400, 500 snaps a year, but you bring him in in positions and situations where he can win, which is passing downs and, you know, stand up outside linebacker or put his hand in the dirt. He can kind of do both, um, but he wins in a particular way. And, and you know, as good as the Eberflus defenses were, as good as Gus Bradley's, you know, cover three and all that he does, I think those teams do love to kind of keep the same four down linemen and not really blitz a whole lot and all those things, which, again, not, not one way is the, the correct way to do it. But I'm in love with the idea of 
give me seven defensive linemen that I like and that have different skill sets that are that are winning in different ways, and that is what Samson Ebukan has brought to this defensive line. What has been your impression in these first three games from what you've seen from their defensive coordinator, Gus Bradley, with this group? Yeah, so look, he, he does what he likes to do. I mean, he's going to lead the NFL in cover three every single season that he's in the NFL. He has his principles. You know, he likes his staples. I think what he's done is a little bit of letting some guys tee off, like letting Zaire Franklin play forward, like I said, rotating some DL, um, and letting guys you know do things that they're good at and not asking them to do things they're not particularly good at. But I think it is a little bit of that, a little more bringing pressure, a couple things that he didn't really like to do in the past. We're seeing more and more of that. But also I think it's just – you know, they're, they're able to protect the weakness on the unit right now, which is obviously the secondary because they're winning so often up front. And, you know, then you can sit back in zone. You can let those guys just keep the offense in front of them because, you know, the pass rush is going to get home. And even if you give up passes, they're going to be short, you know, seven, eight-yard gains, not the bombs that we saw, you know, go to Zay Flowers you know, in the first couple of weeks for Baltimore. All right, Brad, we have seen in a, a game and a half – Gardner Menchu come in and hold it down and then get two wins, two and one of the season right now. And we'll see about Anthony Richardson later on in the week. I know a lot of people around here suggest that um, they would expect him to be back, but it's always kind of a tough call to make regarding concussion protocol. And I'm not going to go overboard and suggest that there's a quarterback controversy because there certainly is not. But describe from... PFF terms exactly what you've seen and the production Menchu has given in place of Anthony Richardson under center for a game and a half. Yeah, so first at a higher level, a philosophical level, I think the backup quarterback is one of the most important positions in the NFL. And I think Shane Steichen probably learned that with the Chargers and Chase Daniel, who was basically a quarterback coach for Justin Herbert. You then go to Philadelphia, who understands the value of backup quarterbacks better than any franchise in the NFL why they had Nick Foles in a Super Bowl. It's why Jalen Hurts was ready as the heir apparent to Carson Wentz before Wentz was traded away. And I think it was so smart of him to convince Gardner to follow him to Indianapolis. So that at a high level is, is the first most important thing. The second thing, though, is the reason why Minshew is such a great backup quarterback is, like I said, he doesn't try to reinvent the wheel. He knows the playbook for Anthony and the playbook for him are two entirely different playbooks, right? But, but that's okay. And, and you just you take the easy throws. You take the checkdowns. You know your defense is going to keep you in the game. Sure, is Lamar Jackson explosive? Yes. But they're missing their left tackle. They're missing their center. They're missing Odell Beckham Jr. Like, you knew you just had to move the ball down the field, try to have long possessions and, and eat up some of the clock. And that's what he did was he stayed on schedule. He was willing to take the six, seven-yard plays instead of trying to wait and hit the bombs. And, and that's why he wins when he comes in these games, uh, you know, wherever he's been. All right, Zach Moss, 88 yards the, the week prior in that win down in Houston, nearly five for clip. Um, and then he goes well over 100 in that win in Baltimore on Sunday. We've talked a great deal about Jonathan Taylor, and I still expect him to come back, and we'll see in, in what form or fashion in which he does return after he, he gets off a of PUP here. But how impressed have you been with Moss? Because he's at the top of the list of reasons why the Colts have started the season 2-1, and one, because compared to week one with the running situation at running back, this has been so incredibly uplifting. I start – Right there with Moss. What's been your impression? Absolutely. He's been remarkable. I mean, yes, the offensive line has played well, given him lanes to run through. But we look at a couple things, you know, to isolate running back production and contribution. You know, missed tackles forced. He had a bunch this past week. And we also look at yards after contact per attempt. He was bouncing off some tackles. So in those two areas, he, he showed up very, very well this week. And, you know, not to be mean to Deion Jackson, who I know is not even on the roster anymore, but, but you didn't have that in week one, right? So he's winning by himself and taking advantage of – I think he learned in Indianapolis more about patience. In Buffalo, I think he would slam into a hole right away and as opposed to being a little bit patient, letting things materialize, letting rushing lanes open – so there's that component to it as well. And then catching the football. I mean, he had a couple of nice grabs in this game, too. I think one of the touchdowns was a receiving touchdown. 
Going back to last year, even, he's looked really, really good in a Colts uniform. That's a, no doubt about that. Brad Spielberg, and we'll find out what happens, Brad, from PFF regarding Jonathan Taylor. This matchup with the Rams, what we witnessed last night was an L.A. loss on the road in Cincinnati on a game that, eyeball-wise, was really not that appealing. You get a short week after a Monday night loss. You know, you go back home, come back across the country, come here, 1 o'clock start on Sunday. How much of at least – on paper like that, is there a Colts home field advantage with a Rams team that's basically all over the map? Yeah, you know, I think traveling west coast to, to the eastern part of the country, I don't know if L.A. is going to go home or stay, you know, out in the area they're in right now, obviously already in Ohio. But it's the biggest advantage from a travel standpoint in the NFL is guys that have to fly across the country for early games. And then for them, they're playing at like, you know, 10 a.m. on their internal body clock. So it makes a huge difference. But for me, when we opened the show talking about it, I mean, you saw last night, we had Joseph Noteboom with a 0.0 pass block grade, uh, which happens like three or four times a season. Um, and I think this defensive line is going to be all over Matt Stafford, just as the Bengals were. They had six sacks from all different players. Uh, you know, Trey Hendrickson was dominant in that game. But, but yeah, I, I think you can win this game with the same way the Bengals did. I mean, their offense didn't do anything, but the defensive line was just eating the Rams alive, and, and I think it could happen again. It just seems like, certainly from a standpoint of what you, you witnessed with uh, with that Super Bowl team with the Rams, this roster is a shell of that at best, it seems. Absolutely. I mean, I really am still impressed with how they've been. It's actually been far better than my expectations, especially once they lost Cooper Cup. I mean, the fact that they were able to move the ball consistently against San Francisco is one of the most impressive things Sean McVay's ever done. But from a talent on paper standpoint, outside of Matthew Stafford, Aaron Donald is, you know, is still Aaron Donald. He was exceptional last night. But and you've had the emergence of Puka Nakua. You've had Tutu Atwell. Their speedster playing much better football. But in the trenches, if you remove Aaron Donald, the, the Rams rank 32nd on both sides of the ball um, if you remove one player from the equation. And so you just double him a bunch. You obviously have good interior offensive linemen in Indianapolis. Um, so maybe you're never going to stop Aaron Donald, but you can neutralize him a little bit. You should win every other trench matchup in this game. It's Brad Spielberger, a pro football focus on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. What did you make? You brought up Aaron Donald, and and then I guess you can factor that into the Colts offensive line, the way you have seen them play thus far through three weeks. Now, yeah, Braden Smith obviously struggled with penalties on Sunday, but for the most part, what's been your impression on that group? You know, I think, honestly, it could just be health uh, for Quentin Nelson and Ryan Kelly. I know Nelson's still dealing with some small stuff and missing practices, but you know, Ryan Kelly's our highest-graded center right now. And he has – I know he's been a highly paid guy, first-round pick, but he was really not in that conversation the last couple of years. I know he also went through a lot of things off the field, which obviously is going to impact you on Sundays. But he's been playing really, really well. And I think regardless of the quarterback, he just looks – much more calm, composed, much more clear, I think, with what he's being asked to do, which probably goes back to Shane Steichen. Like, you see on their combo blocks or on their shifts and, and different protections, there's not confusion, right? And they're not – and they're going to have – look, you're going to see a lot of stunts against the Rams. They're trying to game things. And Raheem Morris is a good defensive coordinator. He's going to try to, you know, get free rushing lanes for Aaron Donald or others. What I've noticed is compared to just last year to this year, them recognizing stunts and blitz and picking them up has been night and day so far through three games. All right, Brad. Texans 37-17 on the road in Jacksonville. That's after they took a beating by the Colts in their home opener. What did you make of that matchup, and, and why such, besides obviously the win against the Colts in week number one here in Indy, why the obvious slow start really on both sides of the football for Doug Peterson's team? Yeah, so if for them, I know I'm, I'm repeating myself a bunch at this point, but, but the Jaguars are missing left tackle Cam Robinson. Um, he's on a suspension for one more game and then comes back in week five. I think that'll have a huge impact because not only do you get him back at left tackle, but you then replace the left guard who has been the weak spot of the offensive line for them. So I expect that to, to reverse a little bit. And then secondly, we right now have the Jaguars with the most drop passes in the NFL with nine um, the next highest team, I think, has six. Like, they're really kind of off in their own category. I think Calvin Ridley had four drops in this game alone. Obviously, he was, he was special in week one. But, you know, some rust there, I guess, popping up to a degree. So, they're going to get back on track. Trevor Lawrence, I think, actually has been phenomenal. There's just been a lot of things going wrong elsewhere. And their defense, look, I mean, 
It's a young unit, an inexperienced unit, particularly at linebacker and in the secondary. And teams, I think, are just picking on them right now. If you have time, if Josh Allen and Trayvon Walker aren't getting home, which, you know, they kind of haven't been to a degree, Walker is going to be a good player. But as of right now, he does not win one-on-one matchups all that often. Um, you, you can throw on this secondary. So it's really just, you know, they just teams have had time to throw against them. And then Trevor Lawrence hasn't had much time, you know, with his offensive line. C.J. Stroud, his first three games as the rookie starter under center for the Texans. I I was impressed even in the loss to the Colts in week number two. What's been your impression? Yeah, he is for real. I know you're going to have the comparisons between two AFC South top five picks quarterbacks probably for their entire careers and I, I like Anthony Stark too but but Stroud looks special I mean it's very very early but they're missing four starters on the offensive line including both tackles and I think you also see an emergence from Nico Collins their fourth year wide receiver a former third round pick who looks awesome the rookie tank Dell is already a problem underneath he can make guys miss in space he can also win downfield had that bomb touchdown against the Jaguars in this game but but Stroud's manipulation of the pocket he's so calm back there He's stepping up when there is a clean pocket. He's sidestepping and avoiding pressure and staying very calm and poised. And that was his biggest knock on his college tape was, look, when he's kept clean, he's as good of a thrower of the football as anyone in college football and looks that way already at the NFL level. The biggest improvement I've seen is he's not panicking under pressure, which he did do at Ohio State. So, I mean, here's a stat for you. On third and fourth down, he's our second highest graded quarterback behind only Patrick Mahomes. He has the most completions, most yards, most touchdowns, and the highest accuracy in the NFL on third and fourth down. He looks really, really good. Hey, Brad, Tennessee will throw out some clunkers, but did that game where they basically went three points and that was it offensively in the second quarter, losing 27-3 on the road to the Browns, is there more about the offense and it not working in that capacity than that just being kind of a blip on the radar or a bump in the road? I think it's both. I mean, first, the Cleveland Browns through the first three weeks have allowed three and a half yards per play. It's the lowest in 100 years in the NFL. So that defense is really, really for real. They added a ton of talent. They bring in Jim Schwartz. And it's paying off immediately. But also, I mean, Tennessee probably has, I think, the worst offensive line in the NFL. And then DeAndre Hopkins doesn't really create separation. He's your, you know, your contested catch, you know, possession receiver. I don't know if Ryan Tannehill trusts him yet to fully, you know, kind of uncork it even when he's covered. And then you have, like, Chris Moore is playing ahead of Traylon Burks, their first-round pick last year. It's personnel as much as it is. Like you said, sometimes they have clunkers. They also, you know, beat the Chargers. So, they're the most up-and-down team of all time. But, but no, the, the talent is just not there for them. There's a rebuild coming. I, I think they realize it. They understand it. They let a lot of talented players lead this offseason. But if a couple more weeks go like this, uh, if I'm them, I'm putting Will Levis in the game. I, I'm trying to trade Ryan Tannehill to the Jets. Like I, I, and a couple more losses, and, I, and I'm tearing the whole thing down to the studs. Speaking of the Jets, somebody had just called up, and I'd been, been asked this regarding Gardner Minshew more than a couple of times. And as I've mentioned before, uh, yesterday, in fact, uh, his best value clearly to me is here uh, because of what he's brought in a game and a half and wins, and also because Anthony Richardson through three weeks says two of them unable to finish a game and then did not play in the third. So it's obvious that his best value is absolutely right here. But what might the Jets end up doing regarding their quarterback situation? Yeah, his name, I think, is always going to get brought up. And, and I really don't see a scenario where the Colts are willing to part ways with him. I, I think he just means too much, both on the field and I'm sure he is helping Anthony Richardson in those quarterback meetings a whole lot. Because clearly, he's not a very talented you know, guy, but he clearly knows football at an extremely high level. And that means a whole lot. So, I don't think he'll get moved. I do think the Jets are going to do something. I know they signed Trevor Simeon to the practice squad today. I mean, people might laugh, but I think Trevor Simeon's an upgrade over Zach Wilson. Um, I really think anybody is, is an upgrade over Zach Wilson. And I know their messaging consistently has been, he's our guy. He gives us the best chance to win, yada, yada, yada. I'm not buying it for one second. I think they are going to do something here in the next couple of weeks. You just can't. I mean, the roster's too talented. There are too many good football players trying to win these games. It's unfair to the rest of the guys to keep playing Zach Wilson. Could you make an argument that they've already waited too long? You probably could. I think right away, look, the Dallas game was, what, six days later, you say, okay, look, you're not going to bring a guy in and start him against the Dallas Cowboys defense one week later. But 
for week three, uh, so I guess this past Sunday, you probably should have already had someone in the building learning the language, learning the offense, figuring things out. Um, I mean, you also could say, look, at Mike White comes in from Miami in, in their historic blowout. He was in the Jets building last year and is a really good backup quarterback. And I know it's complicated with the contract and, and you use the draft pick on Zach Wilson and all those things, but you, you knew he wasn't going to be all that much better from last year. I think you could argue, yeah, they already kind of missed the boat, but it's a long season, still plenty of time. They probably lose to the, the Patriots and Cowboys regardless. Um, but yeah, at this point, uh, I mean, they're playing the, the Chiefs this weekend, so they're going to lose that game also. But you need to get someone in there for you know week five and beyond. Brad Spielberger, a pro football focus on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. When when you look at a team like Chicago, we always wonder who may end up getting the axe first here. Um, is is Iberflus there? Is he going to survive this? Who might be the first to get jettisoned as a head coach of an NFL team? Yeah, so the Chicago Bears in their entire franchise history have never fired a coach in season. Um, and I know it's super ugly right now in Chicago, but it's been uh, this ugly other times as well. Uh, I probably mentioned on the show, I'm from Chicago, I'm a Bears fan. So, yeah, I've seen it all. Look, I think Matt Abrams is, is a first-rate human being, a great guy. I'm sure you've you know crossed paths or heard things about him in Indianapolis. I'm sure he's well-liked as, you know, in that building still to this day as well. I do. I wonder if he gets 2024. I think if it keeps going like this, then he's not going to. I think if they can right the ship. The issue, though, is you know the offense is clearly very bad. Justin Fields is struggling, hasn't been developed. The defensive side of the football, I mean, they're dead last in every single metric you can find. You can make up a new metric, and they'd be dead last in it. So that's the issue where, look, if, if he turns it around on defense and they, they believe enough in him to maybe let him hire a new coordinator potentially and say, okay, you took a lot of young talent, you turn the defense around and they were you know, 20th in the NFL by the end of the season after starting out dead last, maybe he survives. Otherwise, unfortunately, because I really do like the guy, I, I think he might be on the way out. Devontae Adams talked about after the latest Raiders loss that he can't afford to wait around, and, and I'm paraphrasing here but his clock is ticking uh might he get dealt is that just frustration after a loss because it would seem that there are a lot of teams out there i could find him a spot right here matter of fact a lot of teams out there that would really enjoy his services if not that in vegas yeah if i had 13 catches for 160 yards and two touchdowns and then my head coach kicked the field goal with two minutes left uh you know uh uh, like what, fourth and fourth in the eight-yard yeah. line. I'd probably have some frustrated uh, quotes after as well. Unfortunately for him, his contract also is is really tough to move, not for the acquiring team, but for the Raiders. They, they've already paid him so much of the cash. They obviously traded top-end draft capital to go get him. I'm sure he'd love to go somewhere else and, and play with you know a whole lot of other teams, but I, I tend to believe he'll stay. He'll be there for the long haul. And yeah, sadly, unfortunately, probably you know, waste a couple prime years on a non-contender. All right, before I let you go, Brad, anything else across this NFL landscape you find interesting? Maybe you're writing about for Pro Football Focus. Yeah, so I put an, put out another article today. It's covering. I may have mentioned it before. We're looking at every two weeks. We're breaking down a potential free agent and a potential draft pick at, at a different position for each team every two weeks. Um, please go check that out. I put about ten thousand words into it, uh, and it's you know full scale breakdown for every team. Um, and the Colts are a fun one. I mean, some different you know needs than you'd expect. But this week we dove into safety play. They have a lot of pending free agents and safety. There's a lot of fun college prospects at safety. So go check that out. We'll do so. Can you give us a little Colts insight of maybe what you had had written about them? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the safety player right now, they're ranked 30th in unit grade at safety. You know, Julian Blackman's a pending free agent. Um, and the other guys, I think, are not. But, you know, they have not played particularly well so far. I think Rodney Thomas had like a 44 grade this past week. Obviously, you know, been a, been a corner, been a safety, kind of a, a hybrid player there. But I believe the guy I highlighted for them, I could be wrong, um, was a safety out of uh, where was it? Uh, uh, Florida named Cameron Kitchens or Miami. I'm all yeah. over the place now. I think I think it's who it was. Uh, could be somebody else. But go check it out. Um, Talks about their stats, their play, how the guy fits in a cover three system. Because obviously, you know, it's going to be single high for that guy. He needs to be good in that area. I think that's who it was, and I may be wrong. But it's all specific to the scheme, to the defense. Like I'm not picking random names, and I'm not going to pick just first round prospects. You're going to get deep dives, late-round guys, guys that fit the Indianapolis Colts. Um, you know, go check it out. Hey, by the way, Juju Brents, the rookie, got uh, that start 
in the secondary on Sunday, and I, I, I thought I saw where PFF graded him out pretty well in that initial start of the NFL. Extremely high. I think high 80 is one of the best grades for a rookie corner all season. It may actually have been the number one grade for a, you know in a single game. Um, yeah, the interception play was awesome. There were some other good snaps on tape. He's fun. He's physical at the line. He's bumping big receivers off their route stems early on. I think he's going to be a good player. All right, Brad. Brad Spielberger, Pro Football Focus with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Every Tuesday right here in the 4 o'clock hour. Brad, I appreciate it. Have a great week. You too. Thank you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline from the Indianapolis Star, he is Joel A. Erickson joining us. Are you originally from the state of Wisconsin? Yes. Yep. What's your favorite Wisconsin band? Uh... Um. Oh, it's Violent Femmes. Why is this? Why is this not coming to me? It's uh, it's the one from Eau Claire. They play like super, like chill, soft stuff. It's fairly recent. Uh, oh my goodness. Okay, I'm I'm trying to I'm searching I'm searching right now for Eau Claire, Wisconsin band. Why is this not coming to me? Uh, so I'm assuming it's not garbage nor violent films. No, it's not. It's not. Huh. Can't don't have it? I'm I'm normally I'm not at my computer to, to look it up. Oh man. I should not have put you in that spot right there. <laughs> it's killing me because I, I it's it, like it's right on the tip of my brain and I'm not coming up with it. Bummer. Somebody will probably tell me. James, you got anything in mind over there? Anybody out there know who we're talking about? I don't have a clue. All right, then. Somebody can figure it out. All right, so if you're from Wisconsin, uh, you like Wisconsin bands, big fan of Milwaukee, the uh, the, the uh, Bucks, big fan of the Brewers and what they're doing right now, too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 the Brewers are, are probably my, my worst vice. Oh, really? I, I, can't, I can't stop them. How, yeah. how far yeah, back do you go with the Brewers in mind? Uh, the first games I remember going to are in County Stadium, and it was like the end of uh, Robin Young. It's Bon Iver. That's the band. Oh, okay. Bone. Yeah. Uh, but what? <laughs> From Eau Claire. Eau Claire is the closest. Eau Claire is the closest. What you would call a city to me. Oh, okay. Uh, All right then. Yeah. <laughs> I got you. All right then. Uh, enough of that. I, I thought this was going to go over a lot better than it did. My bad. <laughs> Erickson of the Star uh, via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I, I want to get to your thoughts of where this Colts team is coming off that win in Baltimore. Two and one. And, and I have told people out there to, hey, don't worry about it. You know, if you want to get excited about it, get excited about it because the excitement has been few and far between in recent history here. But where are they as a team right now where maybe they performed through three weeks a little bit better than what you thought they might coming out of training camp? Well, I think the defense, specifically specifically the front seven, has been um, so good. And it, the funny thing is, if you look at the total yards, because I looked this up today, the total yards don't don't sort of match that because of C.J. Stroud's, uh, all, his, all his yards he got in kind of the second half garbage time, you know. Um, but in terms of like the the play by play and the way they're playing that the, the front has been so good that it has made uh, it is it is it has sort of allowed them to make up for some of their issues in the back end um and and they, I think I think that's what I wasn't necessarily expecting was that you know I thought that they were they were deep but twelve sacks deep I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I was expecting especially against Lamar and uh, Trevor Lawrence, who both get the ball out pretty quick. Yeah, it seems like Quiddy Pay has has really stepped it up, and that's a guy that we had talked about, you know, coming out of camp and going into this year that needed certainly to step it up, and and at this point, it certainly seems like he has. Yeah, Quiddy Pay for sure. I think I think the thing with Quiddy Pay is everybody wants him to to sort of be the blow people off the ball on every snap with his speed guy. 
I, I don't know necessarily know that he's that. I think he's more of the all-around guy. And, and the other thing is a lot of his sacks come on second effort or power and then disengaging. And people, for some reason, discount those. But those are that's how most – I think Gus Bradley has said that's like how like half of the sacks in the NFL happen. Um, and they still count. I mean, <laughs> those plays still count. They, the offense still ends up back. Uh, and, and in, in a bad position. So I think that's that's definitely part of it. Quiddy Pay for sure. Samson Ebicom has been good off the edge. And I think just the depth, just the fact that you don't have to play DeForest Buckner 80% of the snaps uh, is helpful. You know, Zaire Franklin was telling me after the game, a fresh 99 is what no one wants to see, whether or not he's getting the sack or whatever. You just don't, if you're an offense, you don't want to see a fresh 99 coming in in the middle of a drive. Juju Brents got to start for the first time in week three and according to eyeballs and even PFF performed at a very high level what I'm curious about is what did he have to do to prove that he was ready to start meaning why healthy scratches leading up to it do you know the behind the scenes stuff that led to that now I know we don't really care about that as much as we once did now but why did it take them getting into week number three to put him fully in there and get him acclimated it, it was just because it was just because he only um it was just because he only didn't like he only practiced two weeks during training camp and he didn't practice at all during the offseason they just didn't feel like he had enough time in the defense yet um you know he he is a rookie uh and and they they said it was nothing else there was nothing else that was an issue it was just he, he'd only practiced two weeks when the season started and they wanted to get him some practice time and some time in the defense to know that he knew where he was going, basically. you think they were you know, pleasantly surprised in the case of his performance and then initial? Because yeah. I mean, people were telling me, hey, look at his numbers because we have PFF guys on here all the time. They look at his numbers, look how he graded out. I don't normally look that intently at it, but that was eye-popping for that first start in his first NFL game. Well, I I don't I don't love PFF's grades. I'm sure that I'm sure some people will be very upset about that. I don't I don't love their grades. They they I've just come into contact with them like changing them during the week after people you know report stuff and so I, I get a little skeptical of the grades. But just just from watching it, you know, that, that he played really well, you know, and and everyone kind of credits that chop uh, of of Kenyon Drake. Uh, old Colts friend Kenyon Drake, or new Colts friend, recent Colts friend Kenyon Drake. Yeah, uh, yeah. To uh, with with kind of jump starting the defense because you know the first drive they didn't look very good. Gus Bradley said they were kind of doing some stuff that the Colts maybe weren't expecting, and then that they got that chop out. And that seemed to get everybody going. So Joey Erickson of the Stars with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I guess I'm kind of bearing the lead a little bit here regarding Anthony Richardson. And once they return to practice tomorrow, um, what is it going to take practice-wise for him to close out this concussion protocol and be deemed fit to start in that matchup against the Rams on Sunday? Give me a, a couple of hard target days and what we might be looking for with the possibility of his clearance later on this week? Uh, well, he's got to practice. Um, he's got to have a non-contact practice and a full-contact practice. I, uh, there's probably a possibility that he could have done something like that or done something that substitutes for that because the NFL does have stuff to substitute for, like, Saturdays if a guy does his non-contact practice on Friday and then does his on Saturday. I don't know that they need to do that since they're not playing a game till Sunday because they've got Wednesday, they've got – whatever um to to do stuff so uh that's that's all it really takes is is he's got to get through two practices and then the the independent neurological evaluator has to look at his um has to look at how he's his how he's progressing his symptoms and they they make the final determination that he's ready to go back in but usually usually once they're practicing they're good to go so clearly he's been around the team. Uh, he was at practices, yeah, not participating, and he was there on Sunday as well. It, it is tough to try to, I, I guess, fair a guess on this, but if you were in this case, those all seem like good signs. Is your feeling is at some point over the course of the rest of this week he's going to clear concussion protocol? 
They're they're good signs, and and I would say it's it's trending that way. I just get I get nervous with concussion protocol with concussions and and guessing with with concussions. Just uh, when I was covering the Saints, there were a couple times that guys returned to practice and were like, "Oh, okay, they're good to go," and then they had you know a setback in terms of symptoms and went back in. So yes, in general, you know, it feels like if if he's there and he's walking around the sidelines on on Sunday and. Um, everything that that those are all good signs but you just you just sort of never know with with something like concussions hey joel i have said no and we'll see but has the recent performances the last two weeks of zach moss is that going to have any sort of effects on jonathan taylor i the more the merrier to me i mean you, you talk about talented guys you always want talented guys and we'll see what happens coming up next week when taylor returns from pup as i think most of us ultimately expect but does the success of moss the past couple of weeks have any profound whatsoever effects in your thoughts as far as taylor's concerned well, it, it just depends on whether or not the Colts are willing to come off of what they consider as reasonable value in return for him. Because um, that, that's the reason they gave us for not trading him before. They didn't give us the reason that we need to have him at running back. The reason they gave was that they didn't get the return they needed. And so um, I, I think that if, they're, if, it, if for some reason they felt like, okay, he's, Moss has played better than we thought, um, we're willing to take less that that could affect it otherwise otherwise if, if they're sticking to that then i mean you know the christian watson and jalen waddle requests i don't think that those are going to be met and and the other thing is they they, <laughs> they can't run zach moss 30 times a game uh all season they won't have a zach moss by the end of it if they do that so um you know i i still Predicting this thing has been so hard because I've gone back and forth. So I feel like he's just going to have to play through it, play through to the end of the contract. And then I felt like he was going to get traded because everything's so toxic. And then I go kind of go back and forth. But right now it still sort of feels like, especially with some of the other running back news that's gone on around, around the league, that what's ultimately going to happen is that they're not going to find a trade partner. He's got to play. Joel Erickson of the Stars with us talking Colts, Colts and Rams coming up on Sunday in week number four. Joel's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I, I don't know how hardcore you looked at it after the game because there was so much to go on. You know, Matt Gay, the 450-plus and the game winner in overtime, really outdueling Justin Tucker as it seemed in that win over the Ravens. But you look offensively and the lack of anything at the tight end position, was that glaring to you? And Jelani Woods expected to come off of, uh, what is it, injured reserve is what he is on right now until um, after this upcoming week. Does that help immediately here? Uh, What's the priority at tight end right now, especially with a group that uh, was underwhelming, to say the least, on Sunday? Well, so going into the game, going into the game, I was not expecting the tight ends to do a lot. Uh, Dalton Schultz from the Texans in the opener had two catches for four yards. The next week against Cincinnati, uh, Irv Smith had two catches for 10 yards. But the Ravens have just not really given up a lot to the tight end position. And that, that made sense. I mean, we saw what Kyle Hamilton is capable of. Um, we saw the kind of athlete he is, a former first-round pick. Uh, they've got the two, the two great inside linebackers. They've got other good safeties. I was not expecting the tight ends to be much. My larger concern is with the entire passing offense and how long, how long they can go averaging, you know, both quarterbacks right now are averaging under six yards for attempts, which is, is very bad. I mean, seven and a half is considered like the baseline for being good. Six is really bad. And, and on Sunday, you know, it was 3.8 yards per drop back, uh, which is, is abysmal. I mean, they, they averaged less on passing plays than Zach Moss did running it, even after Moss was a little banged up later in the game and his average started to come down. He averaged 4.1 yards carry. Passing game averaged 3.8 yards per drop back. That, that as, as good as the defense is playing, that is not sustainable. I, I'm expecting, though, as the season goes on and Richardson gets more comfortable, his number to go up in, in that specific area. But that's... That I think is maybe the underlying thing that people didn't didn't if people didn't take something away from it that was maybe worrisome. I think that's the I think that's the key is is you're you 
they've got to get those. The, the passing game has to be more efficient than it has been so far. Isn't it funny you look back on that game, Joel, and you had the quarterback, in this case Gardner Menchu, step out of the back of the end zone to give up a safety and I don't know when that's ever been viewed as, wow, you know what? That turned out to be a better better situation <laughs> as it did on Sunday. There was a lot of odd stuff going on that may be at the top of the list. It, it felt like, I, I don't know how you felt, but it felt like when he stepped out, out of the back of the end zone, it felt like, okay, this this is probably it. Um, like it, I, I haven't looked at the win probabilities as the game went along, but it, it just it, yeah. it felt like that play was sort of the end of it. Um, and well, I felt like both teams had about thirty timeouts apiece. That's the way it felt to me. Yeah, it, there, there were so many chances. There were just so many chances back and forth. And I think, I think part of that though is the defense. After Lamar kind of got going there and got, gave them the lead, the seventeen to sixteen lead, the defense went uh, sacked for a stop, and then they tried three running plays, run the clock out, and Grover ate two of them. Uh, and then a sack, the sack by Quiddy Pay there at the end to force a 61-yarder instead of something shorter. And um, I think that's that's the other piece. Is it felt like Lamar was getting going. Any of us who watched that game two years ago kind of know what happens if you let Lamar get going. And this time, this time the Colts had a pass rush that could could trade blows with him and, and take his momentum back from him once he got going. Uh, Joel A. Erickson of the Star covers the Colts. He's with us on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I think Ryman's been really good. I mean, Nelson is just toughing this thing out at this point with that toe. Um, I didn't notice anything but solid play from Wesley French in for Ryan Kelly. Josh Sills was in for Will Fries. We know that. I guess the outlier here was the play and the penalties, especially late we saw against Braden Smith. Um, is there a red flag up right there, or is that just part of a game and a bad game for him late? Uh, the penalties the penalties were – the penalties, you, you don't want those, but I think generally the Colts are pretty happy with the way Smith has played protection wise. I, I don't, I don't have the numbers from sports info solutions, which is the, that's the data site that I use yet, but they, <laughs> yep. hadn't, they hadn't credited, they hadn't credited any Colts offensive lineman with giving up a sack through the first two games. If Jim Bob, if what Jim Bob Cooter said earlier today is correct. Um, I don't know that any of the offensive linemen would be responsible for the three Kyle Hamilton sacks because Cooter basically said, that was my fault that they got that the Ravens were running something and the Colts thought they were prepared for what the Ravens did blitzing wise. And they threw something else at them and they didn't adjust to it fast enough. Um, there was one sack later in the game uh, that I'd have to go back and watch uh, where the defensive lineman actually got him. But then the four, the, so three sacks for Kyle Hamilton, those were offensive coordinator sacks, according to Cooter. Uh, and then the, the, the fourth of the fifth sacks was Minshew stepping out of the back of the end zone which wasn't a, the offense, an, on an offensive lineman at all, or at least I wouldn't put it on any offensive lineman. So um, they, they've been pretty, pretty good in pass protection. I think, I think right now like they've, they've allowed nine sacks, but it's, it's, made, it's a very misleading stat because, um, you know, in the opener they gave up four sacks. Two of them were scrambles that only got to the line of scrimmage. Another one, Richardson held on to the ball too long. It, it it just hasn't been anything like it was at the beginning of last year, or even sometimes at the end of last year. Because you know they they played better towards the end of last year, but there were still some late huge sacks in some of those games that were given up by offensive linemen. I think Ryman uh, is is a big big piece of this. But Bernard Ryman has been has been so good to start this season, and I think you see it with the play of Nelson. I know he's playing through something, but he's playing well, especially in pass protection. And I, 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 I got to assume it's because he's not worried about what's going on to his left. Joe, I know. Um, yeah, last year. Yeah, sorry about that, Joe. I know it, it was one play, um, and other guys got benched for you know the entirety of the games, and one guy, Deion Jackson, got cut for the entirety of his Week One performance. But is Isaiah McKenzie still solid um, as far as is what he was – I mean, he dropped back and, and had that, that late play. It didn't end up costing them. They ended up winning the game, but it certainly was costly at the moment, putting them in position where they are. Um, what about that as a punt returner in mind right there? They don't have a true punt returner really on 
the roster or the practice squad that I can think of. Um, they've got guys who've returned punts before. Does Flowers do it? And has Downs done it too? Flowers, is a, Flowers has been a kickoff return man. I think they tried him at punt return earlier, if I remember right, and he had trouble. It's just a different catch. Yeah, you might um, be right about that. Now, what and, about Downs? Downs can do it, but he, I think I think the workload that he's pulling on offense would make them reticent to do it. Um, and and I don't know that he's a primary type return man. They they don't have sort of the quote unquote punt returner that you think of because even McKenzie I think was sort of in and out of that role in Buffalo. Um, now the, you can find those guys sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, 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 that deciding not to catch it. And I, I saw, I, I got to credit Stephen Holder. I was working on other stuff in the locker room, but he went and he went and asked McKenzie and McKenzie said he came up on it and felt like he couldn't catch it. So he got away from it. So like, that's a, that's a like good decision in the moment, but also bad that you didn't feel like you could catch it because you want your punt returner to be able to field that ball. So it doesn't go back to the end zone. So um, I think that's the, that's the thing that sticks out to me, though, is I, I don't know that they have sort of a – a like what I would think of as an experienced or, or primary punt returner. I mean, like Amari Rogers is on the practice squad, but anybody who knows anything about his time with Packers knows – um, that that's a real dicey situation when he when he starts fielding punts. You know, and, and Joel A. Erickson of the Star joins us. You know, Matt Gay with the four over fifty in the game winner was one thing, but doing it in the presence and then ultimately outdueling the best in the business, maybe the greatest of all time, and Justin Tucker. I'm going to have him on the show tomorrow, and and likely he won't want to answer the question. But that had to be, you know, even beyond the fact they end up winning the game on that final kick, a pretty big damn deal for him. That was that's a that was a hell of a game and some moments for him on Sunday. Well, and I got so I got a chance to kind of see. Um, I was standing on the sidelines waiting to do uh, Blue Zone uh, with with Fox 59 and CBS Ford before warmups. So I got a chance to kind of see stuff. And so Tucker, this was interesting to me. Justin Tucker apparently always warms up in the east end zone, um, which is interesting because the Colts were in the east end zone. Like he was warming up next to Leonard and Buckner and, and all these guys. And Gay came out to do his warm-ups. And he went over to him and talked to him. And he said later that like normally that you're just kind of making, kicking small talk about, you know, how you're hitting and stuff like that. But with Tucker, he just said, you know, what any of us would say with Tucker, which is just, wow, like, just enormous respect for you. And Tucker was very nice, but Matt Gay had to go do his warm-up kicks on the other side of the, in the Raven side of the field, because Tucker always warms up in that end zone, apparently. Um, and like, to me, like, I don't think that that's like a, a Tucker's a jerk type of thing, but it is sort of a, like Tucker is the guy, you know what I mean? Like you have to be the guy to, right. do that, to, to have a, to have an end zone that you get to warm up in. And to be able to warm up in it, and the Colts just be, and the Colts, you know, be, just be like, okay, that's 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 fine, you know. And then Matt Gay goes out and does what he does, which, you know, I I, I have said all along, I, I was super harsh on them for not addressing the kicking position more forcefully the last couple of years. And then I know some people didn't like the Matt Gay signing, but I was like, number one, five and a half million dollars in the grand scheme of the cap is not very much. And number two, after the uncertainty they've had at the kicking position, to have somebody who could do what Matt Gay did on Sunday, like regardless of where they are in their rebuild or retool or whatever you want to call it, that's a guy that you want to have around. Like you just don't want to have to worry about that. And then they, they went out and paid resources, and it, it paid off. They, he won the game on Sunday. One final thing with you, too. Uh, sometimes when you get going in practice, which they will tomorrow in, in that week starting after a game, uh, somebody ends up on the injured list that you didn't really expect. And I, I kind of thought about this with Zach Moss in mind because he looked like he was really gutting that out to a high level in his performance, but gutting that out. Anybody pop off the page as maybe we hear about with with an injury to start this week of practice that we weren't really thinking about after that win on Sunday? The 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 I'll be interested to see if Zach Moss is because Wednesday is the day that they, they generally give people off. And I, I wonder if Zach Moss gets a gets a thank you for uh, to having 30 carries, you can take the day off. 
Uh, it sounded like he was okay, but there, there's no way he felt like great on Monday because there were times he was moving gingerly yeah. uh, in, in that game. And, and our, our photographer, Jenna Watson, got an unbelievable shot of him getting rolled up on. He talked about getting rolled up on later, but she got an incredible shot of he's bent back and his body, his legs are on the ground. There's someone laying on him. I, I wonder if Zach Moss is, gets, gets Wednesday off, whether or not that means anything for his availability for Sunday. You know, I mean, Quentin Nelson hasn't practiced on Wednesday or Thursday the last two weeks and still played. So I don't know that it means anything. But I, I do wonder if, if we see Zach Moss maybe maybe get a, uh, like I said, a thank you, a thank you rest day on Wednesday uh, to, to kind of heal up after that, that 30 carries he was given. Cause, I mean, one thing about Baltimore, it, ever since the Baltimore Ravens began, those that's a physical team. They they If you play against them, you come away hurt. Yeah, I yeah, I agreed. And and that's he looked that way. I, I would agree with you. He looked like that he was he was gutting that out toward the end. Hey, one more thing, Joel, before I let you go. Uh, it certainly has been the gamesmanship, if you will, and the coaching uh, of Shane Steichen, and we've seen it back-to-back games, you know, getting the the opposing team to utilize a timeout in a, a fashion and a place in which they did not want to. And I guess this is speaking to the younger generation here, and I sound really weird as an old dude saying it, but does he have any more, anything else like that, you think, in his bag, gamesmanship-wise, oh, so. that he may end up utilizing? I I think so. I think – I thought his answer on Monday when he was asked about this, I, you know, it's 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 Shane, so he's, he's trying really, really hard to uh, uh, not give us – any of that stuff, but uh, like not to give us exactly what it is, but he did sort of allude to the idea that he's gone through a lot of coaching history and tape and looked at little things you can do to gain a little advantage here or there. And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't have something waiting in the wings. Cause at some point teams are going to kind of expect the forced timeout thing. I would think, um, and I'll be yeah. interested to see what he's got because there there are some, you know, you see it with like like Vrabel and Belichick. They got some, they always have some weird clock thing in their back pocket. Yeah, I think the fact that Steichen is doing this, um, and just just what we know of him in general, he's he's super super into the weeds on everything. I, I bet he's got another trick up his sleeve he hasn't used yet. I just wonder. I wonder. He, he looks like a dude that probably sits around. Uh, in the middle of the night, thinking about that, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think that that's dead on. I think he's exactly the kind of person who would think about that stuff. You know, the story I wrote on him last week, Isaiah McKenzie said he's a nerd. Like he's the, he said he's the nerdiest coach I've ever been around. Talking about like a football nerd, and you think about like, you could just think about what that means to be the nerdiest football coach an NFL football player has ever been around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I do. I think that that's the kind of thing that that he gets geeked up on. I think I think when the rest of us are down a rabbit hole looking at the MLB standings or uh, something like or, or something like that, or watching our favorite show, I think Shane Steichen is is sitting there thinking, you know, I bet I could get a guy to to burn a timeout in this way. Yeah, yeah, and, and I just kind of wonder what else he might try to do there i mean it makes it interesting I mean, it does it, it certainly makes it more interesting when you win and like they did on sunday joel surprisingly win right there joel erickson of the star covers the colts joining us on the andy moore automotive group hotline we'll see you up in the uh, press box on sunday man i appreciate you on this tuesday jumping on here have a great week yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it as always. Uh, Joel A. Erickson of the Indianapolis Star. Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline, Greg Rakestraw joins us. So how was the uh, Amy birthday weekend? It was fantastic because it was Jack's birthday on Friday as well. So it was the big family birthday bash that we tend to have every year uh, around their birthdays. And obviously the weather was splendid. 
And I think she was legitimately stunned that you were the one that answers the phones on the JMB takeover. That threw her <laughs> off when she called the show. I kind of wondered. She was a bit apprehensive, like not knowing who it was. And you obviously know my wife. She is anything but apprehensive. Right. So she was stunned that a star, the magnitude of JMB, <laughs> would answer his own phones for his radio show. That's funny. No, it's only only me and that you've seen it before. Only me moving around you all night long. Man, band. I, I am familiar with the operation. Yes, sir. It's uh, Greg Rakesraw with us. Week seven of the high school football season is upon us as of Friday. Let's double back to last week. What'd you think? Some standout performances that you caught on Friday. You know, I, I was stunned that Ben Davis beat LM in the fashion in which they did. Uh, you know, I was down in Washington at the Hatchet House on, on Friday night, and you know, we were producing the Ben Davis game, too, and his producer's kind of going through, you know, halftime scores. In my area. He's like, yeah, Ben Davis, 55, LN 14. I'm like, come again? Like, yeah, Ben Davis put up 55 in the first half. So so that was jaw-dropping. Uh, the ease in which Brownsburg beat Westfield caught your attention, and maybe we are seeing a definitive top three in terms of 6A, in terms of Brownsburg, Center Grove, and Ben Davis. And I think I listed those in the order of the AP poll that was released today, but I, I'm not sure there's much that separates those two. Obviously, Ben Davis and Brownsburg would see each other in, in the sectional, you would think with Center Grove awaiting in the semi-state round from whoever is left. I know Franklin Central would probably have something to say about that as well. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, in a class like 1A, Lutheran's a clear favorite. In a class like 3A, Chittard's a clear favorite, although Garen gave them a heck of a defensive battle uh, in, in terms of their game on Friday night. Uh, but to me, John, the story is I, I can't believe we're at week seven. I can't believe that we are two-thirds of the way through the regular season already. I completely agree with you on that, too. Uh, individual performances that would lead you to believe, front-runner-wise, for Mr. Football, where are we going into Week 7? Well, obviously, I, I still think you, you default to the two quarterbacks that are kind of in the mix, uh, and that would be Danny O'Neill of Cathedral. Again, I don't think this is a vintage Cathedral team. They got a good win on the road in Lexington uh, against Frederick Douglass High School on, on Friday night. Uh, we'll see how they stack up with Center Grove in, in week number nine. Uh, the cherry kid from Center Grove because of what that team can accomplish and potentially being a four-peat. I know one of the highest-rated recruits in the state uh, plays at New Haven. They had a big win on Friday night. They are 6-0. and uh, The ringer kid from East Central, uh, and they are, have a good chance of winning 4A back-to-back years. He's going to play at the Mid-American Conference level. Frankly, I, I think – Kind of like 6A, this is a year where there are multiple candidates for Mr. Football, and, and I'm not sure there is a clear favorite just yet. Frankly, what happens in October and November, I think will go a long way to see who Mr. Football might be. Yeah, it's a lot of names right there. And yeah. No no question about that. Give me a couple of matchups coming up Friday night that you're going to highlight. Ben Davis and Carmel obviously gets your attention, uh, you know, for Ben Davis, I think they largely racked up the Mick Championship by beating LN in the fashion in which they did. Obviously, this is a non-conference game. Carmel has now put back-to-back wins together, uh, but but perhaps this is the best. I think there's perhaps the best in-state team they have played so far this year. So that'll give us an idea of just how good John Hebert's team is going to be. I'm going to have Warren Central and Lawrence North. You know, Warren has been playing well the last three or four weeks. Unfortunately, they lost their quarterback in Jackson to a pretty significant arm injury uh, in the in the loss against Ben Davis a couple of weeks ago. LN is young and talented, and I, and I think clearly maybe they stewed a little bit over, over the loss to Carmel because they outgained about 170 yards two weeks ago and just getting housed by Ben Davis last week. So how, how does that team bounce back after starting the season 4-0? That's what I look forward to. Um, Lutheran and Monrovia is a game that we don't normally talk about those teams on a regular basis. Lutheran is putting together a heck of a string in terms of 1A. I think they are bound for 2A next year because of the success I expect them to have in the postseason. Monrovia is doing Monrovia things. They're racking up an average of over 400 yards rushing per game at this point. But this is going to be maybe the best team they face all season. So if you look at outside of 6A, that's a game that should get your attention as well. All right, college football over the weekend. Obviously, everything that surrounded the drama at the end of the Notre Dame-Ohio State game uh, and Notre Dame losing. How about Purdue? Uh, are you shocked that their starts in these three games they have had at Ross Aid have had all the ending in which Boilermaker fans have been very disappointed about? 
Yes and no. I mean, just because Wisconsin's not anything great, but clearly they have had Purdue's number. Fresno State is as good as any team outside of the Power Five this year. And Syracuse is undefeated. Syracuse seems to be a, a pretty good operation this year. So um, I, I think expectations were a little bit down just because you've got a brand-new head coach. You've got a largely different roster. Um, and so you're, you're never happy being one in three and those three losses being at home, especially if you're a power conference team. But I think a lot of folks kind of thought that maybe a year like this was in the offing for Purdue. So disappointing, yes. Shocked, no. So Greg Rakestraw via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. IU does something that's completely IU. Uh, gets a four-overtime win, and still everybody is all over him about stuff. And rightly so, don't get me wrong. But there was nothing more IU than that win on Saturday night. You know, I'm starting to think that 2020 was like a comet. You know, you see it like once in a lifetime. Uh, and, and the shame is nobody could be there to enjoy it. I mean, three years ago in the same, you know, two-month span, you have victories over Penn State, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And nobody could actually go and enjoy the game. Maybe that's the most IU football thing ever because um, they've clearly fallen back to earth in the last couple of years. <laughs> and, yes, the conversation yeah. would be a whole lot worse if they had not found a way to win that game, if Akron had not helped them uh, to win that game. Uh, but as I was having a conversation with Derek Schultz earlier today, crazy thing is, is that if Indiana finds a way to win against Maryland, which will not be easy, but if you can find a way to win against Maryland, you can still salvage your season. And I think if most folks looked at their schedule and said, all right, Indiana could be 3-2 and two going to the buying or to the Michigan game the week after, I think they'd take it. So I think Maryland's better. I don't think I use all that good. But you still have a chance because you you avoided stepping on the banana peel. It was uglier than sin, but you still found a way to win the game on Saturday night. All right, fourth, I should say, the uh, Colts' fifth quarter huddle. You and Bill Brooks probably had a, a number of calls. What, what was the major major feeling? I, I've been telling everybody so far today, don't let some schlep rock say, hey, Pump the brakes on where you are right now at two and one because it's been so few and far between these moments of joy for Colts fans. I say soak it up. I'm assuming that those listening to you guys on Sunday were doing the same. It was a very positive show. Um, there was minimal criticism, if any. And obviously, you know, there are decisions you could you could look back and say, maybe you should have done that, maybe you should have done that. That that's every national football league game. But no, there's there's hope and optimism. And again, that was that was kind of the most giddy I, I think we have been, you know, going into a post game show in quite some time. And, and obviously, things could change on Sunday. I hope they don't. Uh, I almost thought that Sunday, as in this past one, was kind of a house money game, you know, for the Indianapolis Colts. If you lose that game, well, kind of expected to, at least from the outside looking in, and you've got four of your next five at home. Instead, you've got all the momentum in the world. You have four of your next five at home. You're going to get your, your first-round draft pick quarterback back sooner rather than later. You're going to get your center back sooner rather than later. That Wesley French was solid. Uh, and at some point, you're going to add Jonathan Taylor back into the mix with this football team as well. But Zach Moss has looked tremendous. Josh Downs looked like the guy you drafted him to be in the third round. Juju Brents looked like the guy you drafted him to be in the second round. And Quiddy Pay looks like the guy you drafted him to be in the first round a couple of years ago. So things are all kind of clicking into place. And, John, the year that kind of keeps coming back in my mind, and you heard me say this in the preseason too, um, the last time maybe I was, I was, I wouldn't say so negative, but had such little expectations coming into the season was 2012. And that team won 11 games. And there are some there are some similar traits in terms of kind of how the schedule works out. And all of a sudden, kind of an early season change of expectations for this football team um, that, that could now be possible if they can keep this momentum from the Baltimore win going into the Rams game coming up on Sunday afternoon. Greg, final thing with you. As a Reds fan, have you been – through I guess filled with joy enough with this season especially with the month of June to counteract how they're fading away here down the stretch out of the playoff picture absolutely I mean this was a 100 loss team last year 
uh, and there were zero expectations. Wonderful one month was and how things seemingly turned on a dime. If you had told me then, hey, you're not going to make the playoffs, I'd have been disappointed. And if the season ends as expected coming up this weekend, yeah, it stinks. You're going to watch any more baseball. But you're going to win something in the neighborhood of 20-plus more games than you did last year. And you also know that really you're maybe a pitcher or two away from seeing something special here, that this team is set up to have maybe their best run of success in quite some time. So disappointing, yeah. But, man, regardless how the next five games play out, it's been a heck of a year to be a Red Sox. Yeah, and, uh, and by the way, Matt McClain re-aggravated his oblique strain. He is done for the remainder of the season. And that stinks because he has been one of the more enjoyable players we have been introduced to and watched in a Red Uni this year. That's a bummer. Absolutely. No, yep. I mean, again, and I really think that them not getting a pitcher at the trade deadline wasn't a lack of the Reds wanting to go out and spend – because Reds fans showed up by the thousands yeah. to kind of let, let the front office know, hey, you know, we want to win here. I think it was lack of quality arms available or didn't want to mortgage pieces. I do think this group, A, will have more young pitchers to develop, but more importantly, I think they will be shopping on the free agent market for pitchers because, frankly, they don't have to shop in the free agent market for position players. They seemingly have a guy lined up at all of those spots going forward. Tell Amy she was fantastic on the air Saturday night, and I, I got right to Ice House and Electric Blue. You were you were tremendous. Trust me, we were so in a, in a, we we had dinner at Harry and Izzy's. Yeah, but Mia also had a choir performance at Crane Bay. She she with nice. the Indianapolis Children's Choir. So we were running the kids shuttle in and around listening to the JMB takeover. So we got to listen to both songs in the car. Um, while we were a part of the show. Beautiful. So that, that too made our evening. I, I love being a part of the Rakestraw family on a Saturday night. That's pretty special. <laughs> you get one of us. You, 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 got, you got our own version of the Larceny Bourbon Double Cup on Saturday night. <laughs> Appreciate it, buddy. See ya.